the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue with our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a member of the Department of Surgery at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston and a distinguished professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. He is... um, Let's see, how how did I see him described? Surgeon, scientist, and author of a uh, very interesting new book uh, just published this month, uh, October of 2021, it's uh, it, it looks at the um, surgeons during the Revolutionary War. Um, it's uh, called Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots, and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge by Dr. Per Olaf Hasselgren, and he joins me by phone. Per Olaf, wait, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, now, you have um, a, a long-time interest in uh, surgical history and American history. Um, is, is, this, is this your first book? It's my first book in this field, yes. I've written some other books and uh, obviously some scientific publications throughout my career. But yes, this is the first book 
delving into the American Revolution and the rule of surgeons. You know, I don't remember in any of my schooling seeing even references to the medical care that, that revolutionary soldiers might get on the battlefield and, and in cities uh, around the 13 original colonies. Um, there was no anesthetic available in those days. Right. So that makes it even more interesting. But before I answer that question or, or develop that thought, I was just intrigued by your opening statement uh, when I when I opened the phone about your advertisements for uh, vaccination against the COVID-19. And I just wrote a op-ed for a newspaper describing the difference between the 1700s and the inoculations that the surgeons played an important role and the vaccinations. So the differences are sort of staggering in the, in the sense that a, nowadays we have a simple shot with a thin needle into the arm, and we don't inject live uh, agents any longer, whereas in the 1700s, as you probably are aware, we had the inoculations, which differed from vaccinations, obviously. And the surgeons were important for inoculation because it required the knife and the scalpel not only to open the pustules with the pus from the patients who had uh, smallpox already, but also to take that purulent material and make an incision on the skin of healthy people to inoculate them with this with the disease. So again, I was struck by your opening statements in the in the pro on the program when I when I got on the phone, and so there are a lot of lot of different aspects, but including the important role of the surgeons during the 1700s and Washington's command of inoculation of the army, as you probably are aware of, the Continental Army, which may have saved the revolution, and the differences between those techniques and the later development of vaccines, which is related but not related. And of course today, a simple shot with a thin needle uh, without causing the disease, although it has its risks as well, uh, but the smallpox inoculations obviously gave the subject a mild form of smallpox. And most patients did well, or most people did well, but people could also get really sick and die from it. So there are interesting differences. Well, it's it, what's fascinating about about your book. First, first of all, Peraloff, I'm I'm just so stunned by the fact that there hasn't been more talked about with regard to these surgeons um, in you know historical writings over these many years, um, because as you point out in your book, they played a significant role not just as doctors and surgeons, but also in politics and, and decision-making and so on. And we came very close to uh, having a, a Revolutionary War surgeon become commander-in-chief. That is right. You are referring to Joseph Warren, of course, and he was not only a famous surgeon in Boston at the time, but he was also an important politician, was involved in the Sons of Liberty worked closely with Samuel Adams, and he was also a, an important um, writer, writing pamphlets and uh, sometimes fiery uh, pieces in newspapers, etc., etc. So both politically and then importantly, of course, he was appointed general in the militia army in Massachusetts just a couple of months before the Battle of Bunker Hill. And you're right. I mean, I think some historians have argued and said that 
if he had not been brutally killed at Bunker Hill, which he was at a young age, he may have become the leader not only of the revolution, but even of the country. So some people have even said we, we may have had uh, Warren D.C. rather Washington D.C. today if he had survived. <laughs> I, I hadn't that even may be to, that may be to exaggerate, but uh, who knows? I, well, I hadn't even thought about the implications of that um, uh, uh, that that giant pyre uh, in D.C. would be the Warren Monument. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> um, but what I, I'm I'm fascinated by the idea that that these. Doctors and surgeons during the Revolutionary War um, had to operate on soldiers and, and people with wounds and injuries and so on without anesthetic, number one, which had to be absolutely brutal, and then under less than ideal conditions as we would consider them today. And thirdly, a, a lot of times they were exploring and doing things that hadn't been done before. That is correct. So, I mean, there are many aspects of that. The fact that there was no anesthesia obviously made the profession and the procedures brutal. And we, we usually say that they were fast, dirty, and dangerous. So many people died on the quote-unquote operating table from shock or bleeding. And if they happened to survive that part, then they not infrequently died afterwards from infectious complications or bleedings or other problems. So it was indeed a dangerous thing. And, and as you probably know, I mean, surgeons in the century before, at least, were not considered very highly in Europe. And still, as you also probably know, surgeons are still called Mr. rather than Doctor in, uh, in England. And that is, a, that is a remnant of that time when they were considered inferior to physicians the the, uh, the medical doctors who did all the fancy work and the surgeons were sometimes considered just the um, the technicians and indeed one of the revolutionary surgeons, John Jones, he had to fight against that concept and really emphasize the importance of surgeons also being physicians and understanding also the medical aspects. And in, in addition to the lack of uh, anesthesia, of course, the lack of hygiene and lack of understanding of antisepsis was, uh, at least when we look at it with today's eyes, was astounding. Uh, in those days, they didn't know much about it. Uh, the surgeons uh, were digging for things uh, after opening the skin and with bare hands and quite often dirty hands and didn't understand the role of uh, keeping things clean. And some of the revolutionary surgeons became... Uh, proponents of that as well, just to wash your hands, etc., etc. So there are only many aspects of surgery in that time, at that time, that differ from today's uh, standards and today's techniques. Um, but yeah, I think the um, lack of anesthesia obviously must have been horrendous. I mean, and I, I think um, patients who um, underwent surgical procedures and, and um, and allowed surgical procedures to be done, either had severe diseases that caused a lot of problems, pain and discomfort. Benjamin Franklin, for example, had bladder stones, and he was very close to undergoing surgery for that, which was even more brutal when they cut open the bottom of the patient and, and were dug, digging around for the stone. But he finally decided, no, that's too dangerous for me, and he was advised against it from surgeons at that time. He was elderly at that time also. 
So speed was important to reduce the amount of pain. And there are some uh, very graphic histories describing, you know, when they did amputations, because there was a second group of patients who had no choice, but they had to amputate a leg that was already half amputated by war injuries. And what would an amputation have been like? Um, were they li- they were literally using hand saws? And so the knives, yes, and strong assistance to keep the patient down and keep the leg down. <laughs> and the speed that they had to use the surgeons meant that not only the legs sometimes were amputated, but even fingers of assistants who held the leg down. So there are some some stories about that. Well, this, uh, how did you get interested in this, and and how do you how do you research? How do you find out about these? Uh, various procedures were their records kept right so my interest in surgical history has been long lasting i mean i've always all as a surgeon i've always been fascinated by you know we stand on the shoulders of the giants as uh, voltaire expresses i think that was his saying and that is true also for surgeons we learn from previous mistakes and previous uh, uh, scientists and surgeons who had developed a lot of techniques Yes, so how do I find out about what happened? Uh, well, there are biographies written about most of these revolutionary surgeons, not a lot of biographies of some of them. And then you have uh, original sources that you can try to find. Uh, and many of those are digitized nowadays, which obviously makes it easy for somebody as a non-historian trying to dig into this, because obviously I'm not a, not a historian by training. I, I felt that I could contribute to something from a surgical standpoint. I've also been um, blessed by the fact that I'm at Harvard and we have a counter library. You may have heard about that before. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a big Harvard library. And in this library, there is the Warren Museum uh, dedicated to John Warren, basically. And I have had close help and collaboration with the main, with the chief um, curator of that museum in terms of finding facts about John Warren and also Joseph Warren. Well, it, this is a, a fascinating book. What about, um, of course, they, they wouldn't have had uh, um, malpractice in, in those days, or did they? Well, not in the sense we have right now, but there were type of malpractice, and there was you risk your life, in particular people, operating for uh, the Bladderstone, the, the stone cutters, as they were called. So Bladderstones, for some reason, were more common in those days. You develop stones in your urinary bladder, and it caused infection, pain, bleeding, etc., etc. So those patients really suffered, and they were prepared to undergo horrendous procedures, again, without anesthesia. So these uh, stone cutters in the 1600s and 1700s, they traveled they were sort of itinerary surgeons, as they called themselves, or they were called. And they went from one town to another and to one village to another. I hate to interrupt, uh, um, and I want to pick it up there, but I have to take a short break here. Um, okay. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Because I'm really fascinated sure. by this. Sure. All right. More with Dr. Peralov. Hasselgren, surgeon scientist and author of Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots, and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about a fascinating uh, subject included in a new book called Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge, written by surgeon, scientist, and author Dr. Peraloff. Hasselgren, who joins me by phone. Peraloff, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem. Thank you. Um, just before the break, um, it, I, I had to cut you off, and I apologize for that. Uh, and, and we were talking about uh, the work of some of these surgeons and, and some of the procedures and, and whether or not there was malpractice in those early days. Right, so there were obviously malpractice in the terms of uh, people calling themselves surgeons, not really being trained, and uh, did whatever they wanted to do. So that was one aspect of that uh, question. The other aspect was there was obviously not the same type of litigation system that we have in today's society, but some of the surgeons were well aware of if everything went wrong, they would be punished. And most famously, the stonecutters come back to that subject who uh, travel around from village to village or from town to town and cut for the bladder stones, they knew that the complication it was high and complications could be horrendous and even res- the, the procedure could even result in death. So they knew it was important for them to get out of town as soon as the procedure had been done. So they just barely cleaned their knives off and then ran out of town because otherwise if something happened, they knew that they would be subject to... Uh, prosecution, sometimes pretty violent, and so to save their lives and to keep in, in business, they run out of time. That was a type of litigation or a type of malpractice consequences. What would lead um, someone to go into that kind of work if that was uh, the risk they were taking every time? Well, I think... Um, just the desire to help people because they knew the patients having bladder stones, for example, were suffering a lot. I guess money was involved as well. I'm not quite sure about that, but I, they didn't do it for free. And they were interested in surgery as such and, uh, and uh, were interested in anatomy. Uh, there was a big development of uh, anatomy and anatomic knowledge in the 1700s. It used to be called the uh, era of... Uh, the surgeon anatomist, and that uh, was driving a lot of uh, academic interest for the body and anatomy, and hence the surgery. Uh, so I think it was a combination of factors that led people to do to get into the surgical field. Now, this book, Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge, uh, Peralov, what, um, what did these doctors do? You mentioned in the last segment, uh, I, I think you... Uh, quoted uh, Voltaire talking about standing on the on the shoulders of our predecessors but what kinds of things were being done that hadn't been done before that that maybe helped inform surgical procedures going forward uh, so one interesting procedure that was new for the for the century was laparotomies. In other words, you cut the abdomen open to remove tumors or other pathological uh, things going on. 
And uh, the first uh, laparotomies happened during the 1700s. And John Warren, who was Joseph Warren's brother, was one of the first uh, persons who did laparotomy. Another revolutionary surgeon who did one of the, actually, I think absolutely first laparotomies at least reported on the American continent was uh, John um, um, Samuel Bard's brother, uh, father John uh, Bard's, who I think in 1759 had reported a case of laparotomy, that is, cutting the abdomen open of an awake patient and taking out a tumor that happened to be, that turned out to be in what you call ectopic pregnancy or extrauterine pregnancy in a young woman. So that was one of the revolutionary type of surgeries that took place. Uh, Obviously, development of techniques for different ways to cut stones out of uh, patients' bladders uh, was um, on the cutting edge, so to speak. Uh, techniques to um, do the um, amputations were also developed and refined uh, during the 1700s, in particular during war times. And there were a lot of wars, as you know, both in Europe and in, in America at that time the French and Indian War and then the Revolutionary War, of course. And um, so there are just some examples of. Um, cutting edge uh, of surgery in those days. How and where were these surgeons trained? Uh, so uh, I think the number of uh, quote-unquote surgeons in America at the time of the revolution, American Revolution were like uh, three, 400. Most of them uh, were trained by other surgeons in the country. So there was some sort of regulated training, apprenticeships, and at the end of an apprenticeship, um, the person going through that was giving us a, a certificate that he had gone through the training and now could put up the shingle and call himself a doctor and a surgeon. A few lucky people who had uh, maybe wealthy parents were sent to Europe for training, and uh, London and Paris and Edinburgh. So for American sur- young surgeons, mainly London and Edinburgh, obviously was the motherland still, and they trained by they were trained by in those days famous uh, European surgeons who were leader who were the leaders in in those days in the field. And and was that all the accreditation there was basically a, a certificate of completion? Yes, for the people who trained only in America, that was the certification. People going to Europe uh, strive to first get a couple of years of practical training in London, where there still was no medical school. And then they went up to Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, there was an academic center of medical and surgical training. And they, if they were lucky enough, they would end up having an MD degree. And at the time of the American Revolution, there were just a few number of surgeons who came back with an MD degree. And they obviously became sort of famous in the community and highly regarded. So the investment that the parents did probably paid off in that sense. How, um, how much did the public seek out professional medical help as opposed to, you know, just using remedies that grandma handed down? I think it depends on where you lived. I mean, if you lived in uh, Boston or in New York or in Philadelphia, you had surgeons and medical trained people around. Obviously, in the countryside, I think you trusted a lot as you said, grandma's advice and uh, 
and uh, primitive, maybe at least in today's eyes, primitive remedies for various diseases. It just seems to me like people would be, uh, especially if they didn't have a lot of knowledge, that they'd be sort of reluctant to, you know, undergo these what were really brutal procedures in that time. Oh, absolutely. I think so. I mean, for, for obvious reasons, you would be reluctant to subject yourself to that. You know, it's an interesting story about uh, John Adams' daughter. Uh, her name was also Abigail, but uh, she's usually called Nabby. So Nabby dis- developed a right-sided breast cancer. And she, she at that time was living with a family in upstate New York. And she understood there was something wrong going on with the breast. And she, she sought local advice from doctors in the area, and they try different types of external treatment, creams, etc., etc. And she finally understood she needed some more professional help. So then she went back to her parents, John and Abigail, just outside Boston. So he was at that time the ex-president. And they were alarmed when they saw her coming in and when they saw and when the mother also examined uh, her daughter's breast. So they wrote a letter to uh, Benjamin Rush, or actually, she wrote a letter to Benjamin Rush because she knew that Benjamin Rush and her father, John Adams, were good friends, close friends. And Benjamin Rush was probably one of the high, most highly regarded surgeons on, or doctors on the continent at the time. And he said, well, now it's time for the knife to fly. And so he had done mastectomies. And he said, I have a 50-year experience of treating breast tumors. So this breast needs to come off. But she was very reluctant. And even and also her parents were reluctant initially. But when they got advice from uh, from um, Benjamin Rush in Philadelphia, and they they decided well, we need to follow that advice. And so she underwent a mastectomy, removal of the breast again, <laughs> without local without anesthesia. And uh, and uh, the, the description of that procedure, I, I have that some of that in my book, is pretty gruesome, as you said. You know. They sliced the breast off the chest, and then there was a lot of bleeding, of course. And the surgeons at that time had a little oven in the corner of the quote-unquote operating room. The operating room in this time was the bedroom upstairs in John Adams' house. And they had the glowing iron sitting there, and then they sort of needed to stop the bleeding on the chest. Uh, just to, I'm saying this just to illustrate how gruesome it could be. And it was like banding cattle, you know, just then. And then John and... Abigail, John Adams and his wife couldn't take it anymore, so they went downstairs and couldn't see it anymore. And so that's the type of procedure. So yes, people were reluctant, obviously. They knew what was coming. But they, uh, some people obviously understood what the consequences would be uh, if they didn't do anything. And as I said, Nabi was strongly advised by Benny Mirage to have that press taken off, which he did. And, and was that how... Um wounds were closed up was uh, um, by extreme heat or, w- or were there stitches involved as well? So that was a way to stop the bleeding in the wound. So that type of wound could not be uh, uh, stitched together because it left a big defect on the chest so that had to heal by secondary intention as we call it. And that took quite a while obviously many weeks and months before that was sort of healed, and that caused her a lot of pain as well. Unfortunately, 
she only a couple of years later developed recurrence of a breast cancer. So she died from breast cancer. And that's also a sad story when you read about that. She came back to uh, Braintree uh, to her parents' uh, house and John Adams became the caregiver the last couple of days with Abby. Uh, Abigail couldn't stand it. She, she just couldn't take care of her. But John Adams actually became the caregiver for Nabby. But you're right. I mean, so, so that type of wound could not be closed, but other wounds were closed with stitches and with other means. And uh, there are books written, there were books written by some of the revolutionary surgeons describing how you should take care of wounds and stitch wounds together. For example, after amputations, it's important to close the wound over the bone of the stump that remains after the amputation. It's just, it's almost impossible to imagine without a resource like your book. Um, Peralov, uh, what was the success rate of these surgeons? When they did these procedures, and some of them were, you know, very extreme, um, how often did that, in fact, solve the problem and the patient healed up and then did well afterwards? Obviously, too many patients died from various types of complications, infections and bleedings and so forth. But obviously, some patients survived. I can't give the exact figures for that, for, for the different procedures. No, I but wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I no, just, right. I right, just wondered, right. you know, we know that, that certainly a much higher number of people didn't survive the procedure at all but of the ones who did what how were their chances of uh, um, healing and and getting some sort of normalcy back to their lives so again obviously it depends on what type of procedure we're talking about if, but if you amputate a leg and, and if that healed without um, without complications and the patient survived I think like today they were they needed uh, prosthesis and so forth and they were also developed in that time at that time wood legs and stuff like that and uh, I don't know how much a normal life they could resume afterwards but at least they survived if they're lucky and they could go on living and the same for tumor surgeries I mean not all breast tumors were cancer and some of them uh, survived and and did well after that did they un- did they understand it uh, like in uh, uh, Abby Adams' case? Did did they understand they were dealing with cancer, or was it just uh, an anomalous growth to them? Well, I think the concept of cancerous growth was established at that time. So I think they and the doctors understood that this is uh, what we call malignant or a cancerous growth that needs to be removed. Yeah, so there was understanding of that. And there was even understanding of the spread, for example, the local spread of breast cancer. The, the surgeons in the 1700s understood that it could spread to the lymph nodes in the armpit, for example, and they were uh, trying to take those out as well. And indeed, Nebby at the time, when, so that was John Warren who operated on Nebby. So when he operated, they found uh, enlarged lymph nodes in the armpit and tried to take those out as well. But so it was a relatively advanced stage at that time. So yes, the concept of cancer, and, and I think it was even called cancerous tumors at that time, it was well established. Now you mentioned when we were talking earlier 
Baraloff, about sanitation and hand washing, and and some of that came out of that period of time. Some because of the Revolutionary War, but but just medical practice in general in those days. But what were some other maybe uh, procedures that are practiced today um, that that had their origins in that time? Well, obviously, amputations are still being done for uh, injuries or for blood supply problems, vascular disease, etc., etc. Cancer surgeries are being done today, obviously, but quite differently. Uh, but the same procedures we do today, common procedures, they were not done at the time. For example, gallbladder surgery nowadays is a common procedure, one of the most common procedures. Then had to wait till the 1800s before the first of the cholecystectomies were done, so that the not been invented at the time of um, the 1700s. And, but otherwise, basically, I think a lot of procedures um, we are doing today have an old history, uh, even older than the 1700s, of course. I mean, take trepanation, for example, you grew a hole in the skull, and that was described already in the ancient times played by the Egyptians and so forth. For other reasons, they wanted to vent the skull of evil spirits, but still it was the same type of procedure. So again, a lot of today's procedures that can go back a long time, Obviously, the refined nowadays and, and the anesthesia and the antiseptics have made made uh, huge impacts and made the, 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 the surgeries quite different today from what they were at that time. Well, and obviously, obviously they didn't have x-rays or MRIs in those days. How did they manage to know what they were looking for and where to operate on a person's body? Was it purely by exterior examination? Right. So, take um, that assumes, for example, going back to that, that was by history. The patient described the symptoms and it became obvious, yes, this patient must have a bladder stone, preventing urination and preventing uh, and causing the pain and infections, etc., etc. But some uh, diseases obviously was were obvious on the exterior. We examined the patient. Uh, breast tumor, for example, could be easily felt. The first laparotomies that I described uh, were actually all, the, the three, four first laparotomies in the 1700s in America were done for uh, dominant tumors that could be easily felt. And they were, uh, almost of the, all of them were gynecological. Uh, because when the ovary, for example, got diseased and you got an ovarian cancer or ovarian tumor, it was easily felt uh, on the patient's examination. And indeed, one of the most famous initial laparotomies was done in a patient where the doctor was called for a quote-unquote pregnancy. And when he examined the patient, yeah, he, she has something in the abdomen, but I don't think it's a pregnancy. I think it's an ovarian tumor. And sure enough, that's what it was. So that made it easier to feel from the exterior and then on examination and made a bedside diagnosis. More difficult was to find, you know, a gastric tumor or a bowel tumor, colon cancer, for example, because they not always became big enough to be palpable to be able to feel from the exterior. And and so there would, would there have been um, exploratory surgeries or 
was that? I, I don't think, no, I no, I don't think so. I mean, an exploratory laparotomy, that was not practiced in those days. They did it when there was obvious there was something going on, a patient had a tumor, and it was causing pain and discomfort, etc., etc. And um, that would be the indication. So the bedside medicine in those days, obviously, was what surgeons and other doctors had to, re- had to rely on. Were there um, things in your research and putting this book together? Were there were there things that surprised you that 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 caused you to to consider some of these patriots and loyalists to be on the cutting edge? Yes. So some of the procedures were new and very courageous at the time. So, for example, just removing a breast rib for a supposed cancer is uh, made you astonished that they did it. And even laparotomists, to me, were astonishing that they could do. Uh, patients were often described as the heroes. I think the surgeons were also heroes because they had to put up with the screams and, you know, and the um, kicking from the patient, etc., holding the patient down. And obviously, as surgeons, we like to help and be gentle to people. But in those days, you had to just... Um, as I said, also the surgeons, I think, were courageous who did that. Um, but there were there were many, there were several procedures that were uh, groundbreaking in those days. For example, one of the surgeons described in the book did an articulation at the uh, arm at the um, shoulder region for an for a injured arm, but that was com- considered no no at that time because there were a lot of dangerous structures in that area. But uh, that specific patient had an obvious non-survivable condition in the arm, and so he just did a counter disarticulation. And he, he became famous for that. And when they did laparotomies, they also became famous because it was so uncommon. I thought, I, I thought that struck me as uh, astounding that they could do those procedures uh, in those days and have some patients survive. That this is just a, a fascinating subject and a fascinating book. It's revolutionary surgeons, patriots, and loyalists on the cutting edge. That uh, is just being been published uh, this month, October of 2021. It's by Dr. Per Olaf Hasselgren, surgeon, scientist, and and author. Uh, per Olaf, thank you so much for spending time with the, me this morning and sharing this. Uh, some of your book with uh, the listeners. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and the book and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yes, I have a website. Uh, easy to remember. My name is uh, Paul Olaf Hassidin. Paul Olaf with a hyphen. And in one word, Paul Olaf at uh, com. Uh, I think just www and then my name will bring it up. Well, Perala, thanks so much for spending this time with me, and keep up the good work. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Once again, uh, Dr. Peralov Hasselgren, uh, surgeon, scientist, and author of Revolutionary Surgeons, Patriots, and Loyalists on the Cutting Edge. 
and uh, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner Program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Armchair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you're invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, 
Where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom. I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. There's a book written called Psychological Studies of Famous Americans, and it examines from a psychological viewpoint uh, Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant and uh, Walt Whitman, people like this, and tries to explain in terms of psychology why these people acted the way they did, that they really did not act from, uh, from valor or anything else, that there were deep psychological problems these people had, and that's why they reacted the way they did. One person they skipped that I thought would be a great subject for analysis, if they had analysis when he was around, was uh, Ben Franklin. I think he... <laughs> I think this man is ripe for analysis. So this is uh, Ben's analyst, and he's in a typical analyst's office. He has an, uh, a, a desk and a chair and a couch and an intercom. Yeah, uh, who, who, uh, who is it, Murray? Ben, ben Franklin. Um, can, I, uh, can I duck him, Murray? <laughs> he's, he's standing right there in the office. He's, he's dripping all over the rugs. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, send him in, Mary. Uh, uh, Mary, how, how's he doing on his account? Uh, th three months behind, huh? Yeah, he's, he's thrifty, all right, Mary. He's... All right, send him in, send him in. Well, hi, hi there, Ben. How are you today? Good. Ben, you want to you wanna lie down on the couch there? Uh, ben, you want to put some papers down on the couch so... <laughs> Don't, uh, don't get the couch all wet. Well, I'd, I'd say from the looks of our clothes, we've been uh, flying the kite again in the rainstorm, right, Ben? <laughs> okay, Ben. Um, we copied down our dreams, did we? Mm -hmm. you, you didn't have to. That same one. You're, you're walking down the street and you, you find a half dollar, and your face is on it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty sick, Ben, you know that? <laughs> Washington has the same dream, only he sees his face on paper. Huh? You, wanna, you wanna give George my number, uh, Ben? <laughs> Okay, Ben, let's, let's see if we can't get to the bottom of this kite fixation thing. Um, the, uh, the lightning knocked you down again, uh, did it, Ben? <laughs> you're, you're not surprised by that, though, are you? I mean, you, you expect it to knock you down, don't you? <laughs> you know, Ben, um, you being a founding father and all, you know, it, uh, it doesn't exactly inspire confidence in people to see a, you know, a grown man flying a kite, you know? <laughs> Too bad it, it, it isn't something a little more private, you know, you could, you could do in the privacy of your own room, like uh, spinning a top, you know, <laughs> some, something like that. 
You have ever thought of spinning a top end? Wouldn't, wouldn't knock you down. Hmm? That's, that's important to you, is it, Ben? Hmm? Okay, let, let me see if I have the picture now, Ben. Uh, you're flying your kite, all right, Ben? And you're letting out the string. Everything's the same as usual. There's, there's something different this time. You, you use strips of cloth for the tail. Red, white, and blue strips of cloth. <laughs> where'd, uh, where'd you get the red, white, and blue strips of cloth, Ben? From, from Betsy Ross. <laughs> she, she's got plenty of it. She, she's up to wearing it, Ben? Now, uh, Be uh, Betsy gave you the cloth, did she, Ben? You, you took the cloth. A, a penny saved is a penny earned. Why, uh, uh, why didn't you ask uh, Betsy for the cloth, Ben? She thinks you're a sissy because you wear bows on your shoes. And, and she chased you down the street yelling... You're not thrifty, you're cheap. <laughs> she, uh, she could have something there, Ben. Not, nothing, nothing, Ben. Mm -hmm. why, uh, why didn't you uh, pay Betsy uh, for, for the cloth, Ben? Keep what is dear to you if, if you would prosper. Mm -hmm. Ben, I, I think we can get a lot more done if, if you drop the little homilies after each, uh, each statement. Ben, we don't seem to be getting anywhere with it, with a kite thing. Uh, let's switch to something else. How how are the inventions uh, coming along, Ben? You you got lucky this morning. You you don't have to wear your bifocals anymore. The the lightning fused your glasses to your eyeballs. <laughs> What, uh, what are you going to call them, Ben? Con contact lenses. <laughs> ben, I, I, uh, I sure would like to be more optimistic about your condition, but I'm um, <laughs> afraid I'm going to have to recommend a shock treatment, Ben. Uh, I, don't, I don't like to do it because there are always uh, undesirable side effects. Well, what, what we do, Ben, is uh, we stick you inside the Liberty Bell and, uh, and we, <coughs> we uh, ring, ring it a couple times, you know. Well, uh, the problem is you, you, you quiver for about two or three years, you see. <laughs> ben, I'm afraid our time is almost up. We'll see you uh, next, next Thursday then. Right. Goodbye, Ben. You, you get him, Mary? He ran out, ran out already, huh? <laughs> this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Armchair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you are invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. Volunteer for a high-risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and 
find that little fella that ordered that bat soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, yes dear, yes dear. At breakfast I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized <laughs> as soon as I regained consciousness. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 